Welcome to the Proctor podcast series presented by the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. Founded in 1967, SPOP is one of the largest oral history programs in the country with nearly 5,000 interviews. SPOP, one community, many voices. Hello and welcome to the Spot Podcast. I'm your host, Aliyah Miranda. This is episode one of our Safe Spaces series where we explore the various types of safe spaces people create for themselves and the links they go to forge and preserve those spaces. This week, we decided that this first installment should sort of springboard off of a letter sent out this year to incoming students at the University of Chicago. It sparked a lot of heated conversation about safe spaces for students on college campuses and being a university-run program that is founded on the idea of creating a safe space for individuals to voice their stories and experiences, we thought it would be important to address it. To give some brief context, this letter followed a string of student protests at the University of Chicago and the disinvitation of a number of speakers to college campuses on account of their beliefs, which students deemed controversial. We on the SPOT podcast committee believe that if there were ever a place to protect the rights of individuals to share and discuss their beliefs, no matter how contentious those beliefs may be, it is in a college setting. Universities are places of debate and critical thought so that we can grow intellectually as we contemplate the opinions and perspectives of others. In the midst of these events, the University of Chicago sent out a letter to incoming students. In it, it read, Our commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. We do not condone the creation of intellectual safe spaces where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. Now, the letter is not clear about what is meant by an intellectual safe space. In fact, much of the debate within the media seems to spring from a conflict in the definition of safe spaces. So today, we'll be exploring what a safe space means to students and staff at the University of Florida. We'll be listening to stories and experiences from the Latinx, the African American, and LGBT community on campus, as well as some insight on the future of ethnic programs at the University of Florida. To begin, let's take a look at an essential space to the Latinx community on campus. If you live in Gainesville, Florida, you've probably driven past it a thousand times without even knowing it. On the corner of Northwest 15th Street and West University Avenue sits the Institute of Hispanic and Latino Cultures, also more popularly known as La Casita. When you ask me like what La Casita did to kind of change my outlook, it's, it's kind of like that conversation. How about it's not like one momentous event that kind of changed my life, it's just like a series of events. So it's like the exposure. It's just the constant exposure, like working with like Dr. Castillo, who is an amazing individual, but then also working with like other, like the other students who are also amazing people. And we're all exploring these issues of justice, talking about like socioeconomic status, like issues of racial injustice, like immigration status and comprehensive immigration reform, um, sexuality, the intersectionality of all these issues. like. I felt like I learned more in at La Casita than I did in all of my undergraduate classes. La Casita, or The Little House, is an advocacy center for the Latino community on campus. Their resources and networking opportunities help facilitate cultural awareness, social justice, and empowerment. I come from a, big, a very big and close household, and coming to college was one of the hardest things I've had to do. Um, but ever since being an ambassador and being so heavily involved and so I spend 
most of my time in La Casita, like, it's, it is what, it is what it says it is. It is my home away from home. And I feel that the community I've made here has become like a family. This alternative space that La Casita offers, it offers for growth because my time at UF would have been heck of a lot worse if I didn't have La Casita as an outlet for me just to hang out, <clears throat> feel at home and comfortable enough to talk Spanglish, to work in activism. La Casita offers not just a refuge, but at the same time, it fosters that kind of mentality as well in creating a safe space for Hispanic students and students that are not traditional. I lived at home as a student, so I didn't, I had a really hard time making friends. So it was the first place that I felt like I had a community and it wasn't necessarily because it was Hispanic Latino. It was just because everybody was super inclusive and they didn't care how you spent your time or whatever. They just loved everybody. But then I also think it's important because it gave me an outlet to connect with my identity in a way that didn't have to be defined by maybe the dominant Latino community on campus does. So I don't necessarily have the language skills and I didn't grow up in like a super dominant Hispanic culture. So, you know, I don't know the music or the food or whatever, but like I got to connect through history and I got to like empower that identity and that's really been influential for me. I remember my birthday last year because that was the first time that people were excited for my birthday and I came in and I'm gonna cry because I always cry but I came in and everybody had like balloons and things for me and it was so nice but um other than that I don't know I it's just nice to go in and have a group of people who care about you so darn it I knew I was gonna cry <laughs> um there was one time that I came in and I had to write a paper and I kept getting distracted and every time I looked up somebody would yell at me to work, you know, like some people who would hold you accountable and I don't know, they just care for you even if it's just like the momentary staff that are there. So I've been there for a really long time so I've seen a lot of turnover but it's still, I don't know, it's, it's nice to see people like laughing there. Damn, I could stop crying. <laughs> La Casita has proven time and again to be a significant space for the college experience of Latino students at UF since 1994. But that's only because before La Casita, campus life for Latino students was not nearly as inviting. My name is Vanessa Carlo Miranda. Um, do I have to say my age? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I'm 40 years old. Um, and I am currently the Chief Financial Officer and Head of Human Capital at E.L. Haynes Public Charter School in the District of Columbia. She's also a Gator alum, and before working in D.C. at E.L. Haynes, she was involved in helping recruit Latino students at UF. In, at least in the state of Florida, that there was a huge Latino population, mm -hmm. but then when you came to one of the best schools that the state has to offer, it didn't mirror the population mm -hmm. of the state. And as a public institution, that was troubling. Mm -hmm. When asked how being a student of color impacted her campus life, she remembers feeling expendable at the University of Florida simply as a woman. According to Carlo Miranda, the path to success at UF was a narrow one, leaving many with limited opportunities. I definitely felt more so as a woman uh -huh. um, and then a woman of color that, you know, this was a man's world. The University of Florida was a boys club and you were either in or you were out and there was no room for women in that club. So that was very clear, not just to Latina women, but to women in campus, period. 
So for me, it was very clear that that as not you know if you're not one of the boys in the mm-hmm. boys club then you were out and so what did that mean mm-hmm. and so for us it was like okay so if you're not a person of color and and you manage to somehow make those connections then you're going to have already a path mm-hmm. right part of student government maybe you're lucky you get invited to florida blue key you start meeting politicians and there's like this path that there was like a treadmill that you could jump on and they would take you there but if you were not part of that then there was really very little for you and and that just obviously didn't sit well with us so we started thinking about okay well we know we're not we're not that Mm-hmm. But should, does, what does that mean that there's no room for us, or does that mean there's not a place for us to have a voice? And so it really very much became about us charting, chartering our own path. She also went on to talk about the general apathy she encountered from other students regarding the concerns of Latino students. She says the need for a center for Latino culture was a necessity for all UF students. Not just for Latino students, but for the rest of the university to learn about I me. Mean, there was such a lack of awareness about Latinos at the University of Florida. I will never forget when I went to an SG meeting to present the case of why we needed funding to help furnish, because we were told, yeah, you'll get the building, there's no money for for furnishings. And so we went to talk to SG and said, look, you guys already supported us in getting this building, we really appreciate it, but now we gotta talk money. And so they're like, well, it's gonna be a tough sell. And I went to a meeting, uh, SG meeting, and they allowed me to do my presentation. And then there was like a debating period where different members of SG got to express their opinion about why they should or should not give money to Latino students and the things that were coming out of these people's mouth. I sat there and my jaw almost dropped. Well, why do, you know, that's, you know, why should we give money to Latino students? I mean, it just, the kinds of things they were saying, I, I remember walking out so angry and I don't even remember now whether when they took the vote they did win or did not win because for me I was like so clear of the lack of understanding about Latino culture and just the lack of of nobody cared I mean as far as they were concerned they were they were SG why should they give money to Latino students we were further segregating our community by doing that that was their position and I just left so angry and so disappointed thinking wow we have a lot of work to do because there was absolutely no desire. It was just this complete and utter sense of like, who who are you people? And so that was really disheartening because in my heart, I was a gator like any other gator. I was no different than anybody else in that room. And yet in their heart of hearts, I was. I was a very different type of gator. And so that was very disheartening. When you are away from home and you're coming to a big university like the University of Florida and you are wanting to be successful academically in your endeavor, that part of that process is also a social cultural process. You can't sort of divert the two. And it is so important for Latino students to be clear about their identity and to be able to celebrate their identity in a place where they feel comfortable being Latinos without having to be worried about what the next person is going to think or say or how they're looking at me. And so having a safe space 
where you can celebrate your culture and where it's clearly, you know, that sort of sense of ownership, right? This is our home. This is where we come. This is ours. There's a sense of pride that comes with it that, that you lose that when you start sort of diluting this and you start sort of making it just another program at the University of Florida that sits in somewhere else. I think the sense of physical space gives it a lot of identity of what can happen, the potential that can happen. I think losing the sense of space, um, you start losing inevitably the same sort of level of cohesiveness. So what happened was that as we were getting involved and or more organizations were coming and more students were coming, we find out that this building was going to be vacated and that the administration had not figured out yet what they wanted to do with it. Mm -hmm. And so immediately for us was like, that's ours. <laughs> and so we put proposals together and we sent it to, um, to the university administration to say, this is what we want this place to be. But we really had to work hard at defining what that was, the concept itself. There was an Institute of Black Culture, right? So we would borrow from that concept of what the Institute of Black Culture was. But, but we really were trying to figure out what does it mean to us and what do we want it to be? Um, and that's where all these negotiations about language and the tone and how aggressive or not aggressive do we want it to be with it. But at the bottom, at the very sort of, at the most simplest of forms, we knew that we wanted this to be a home away from home for Latino students. And we put that in writing. We put it in the proposal that, that this is going to be the home away from home for Latino students. When you look at a lot of what was being said, and maybe there's some research that backs this up, there's always been this notion that Latino students don't go away far away to college because mm -hmm. they don't want to be far away from family. Mm -hmm. And so we said, look, if you're serious about attracting Latino students to come or study here, you need to offer a place that's going to be their home away from home. And that's going to be a key retention issue for you to keep these students here and to be successful. Um, so we kind of went down that path as sort of the proposal. Um, we just, we just, the opportunity was there and we knew we had to get, and we knew we had to mm -hmm. really take advantage of that opportunity. We weren't willing to let it go um, and we fought really hard for it, but it was about a year long process. So okay. I'm going to say between probably about started in 92, 93. So we put a proposal in paper. Okay. Um, four people. We're talking about four people sitting together, hashing this out, putting it in paper. Um, we've shipped it over to the administration and we had great faculty. There was a, fa there was a Latino, uh, Hispanic faculty association and the president, a gentleman by the name of Fernando Fagundo, who was a civil engineer, uh, was the president and he really, he's like, oh, you guys are interested in doing this and we'll, we'll support you. So we had support and guidance from faculty members and from administrators, um, Latino administrators. And so that was helpful to us. But in terms of students, it was really a small group of students that put this in paper and pushed it forward. Because we knew that what we were asking for was big. Mm -hmm. The university had never in their million years expected or thought or would want to do this on their own. Mm -hmm. This had to come from a pressure point. So I was on the external advocacy part. So Livia and some other students, they started building relationships with students from the Institute of Black Culture, with student government, women's center, different places. They started creating coalitions and, and telling them, look, we really want your support on this. On, on, on my end, I was working with, uh, I, we, we sent letters and calls and to Tallahassee, 
Washington DC, we, we reached out to national civil rights organizations like the National Puerto Rican Coalition and the National Council of La Raza, LULAC. I mean, we just wrote the world and we said, look, we're fighting for this and we want you to support us on it. And they did, they started writing letters to the president saying, we understand that you guys are thinking about this and we want you to know that as you know, national civil rights organization, like we're in full support of this and that you should really do this because we would present the case. Like look at the number of students in the state of Florida, look at the number of students at the University of Florida, top university in the state, not enough students, not enough support. So we kind of really did our homework and try to package it together. And so it got people's attention and they're starting writing letters. The day of the grand opening of La Casita, so I actually have this picture where they covered the sign um, and Livia and I got to unveil that sign. And I have to say to this day, like that's one of the most meaningful moments in my life. I knew something big had just happened. And there were, I mean, there we had Senator Bob Graham, we had, there were, I mean, the president was here, everybody from the state of Florida was here because for the first time, I mean, for crying out loud, this was 1994, and we were still talking about doing something for Latino students when the explosion of the Hispanic population in the state had happened 10 years before then. So for us, this was like late in the game. For them, it was like, look at us, we're doing something great here. And so they invited the world to this thing. That day, when we got to unveil that sign and we got to invite everybody to see this space and to talk about what we hoped this space would be, it, it really was meaningful in the sense that we knew something special was happening. And then that fall, when we had the first homecoming, we decided to have a party um, here, Latino style. And we had food and we had music and we put the flags up and, and this is prime real estate for the homecoming parade. And when all the people, alumni, everybody descended on La Casita for that homecoming, that's when it hit me. That's when I knew, okay, this is not gonna go anywhere. People are invested in this place now because we had alumni, we had faculty, we had administrator, we had students, we had graduate students, we had parents who would come to visit and they were like, come on in, this is clearly where I fit, right? I don't fit in another alumni event. I fit here with these Latino students that are playing my music and eating my food and celebrating it. And I remember sitting out here on the porch and people just kept coming by to congratulate us and, to, and we would welcome them. And it was just this like constant revolving door of people going, wow. And we're like, and that's when it finally hit me, I think. Yeah, this is big, this is important. I'm so glad we got to do this. This is really gonna be meaningful for people. And so thanks to the support of faculty members, students and alumni alike, La Casita kept its promise to serve as a home away from home for Latino students. After visiting La Casita, both parents and students could feel at ease knowing there was somewhere Latino students could go to feel included and welcome. Rather than having to assimilate only to the traditions of Southern white culture in place at the university, La Casita served as a place on campus where students celebrated what made them different. Students at La Casita can take pride in the Latin values that shape who they are and how they will one day shape the world after college. La Casita is a reminder to so many students of where they came from. But a building is not enough to educate a community. To truly understand where you came from, to understand the struggles that took place to provide you with the privileges you enjoy today, and to be able to recognize oppression that persists against a demographic today, you need to know your history. 
one of the things that we wanted to see happen as part of this process of creating La Casita and all of that was that we could actually develop a program of Latino studies because we had a great center for Latin American studies, but there was no Latino studies. And there's a big difference between mm -hmm. those two. And so we were trying to push for that, but it unfortunately never got off the ground. That's what we were trying to do this year and it still hasn't. Yeah, it's done. It's done. Yeah, I've been trying. Yeah, there's a lot of other universities that are in the same process, mm -hmm. um, but it's tough. Academia, it's kind of its own world, mm -hmm. and um, and it's 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 a lot it's a lot harder. It's one thing to create a physical location apart from an establishment that's filled with people like you who share your problems and needs and so forth, but it's another thing entirely to see your demographic actually represented in the curriculum when learning about the history of this country. I can speak from experience when I say that seldom did I ever learn about any Latino leaders in this country in primary school. And not simply in politics, but in literature or music or any other culturally influential platform. American history is not told from the perspective of minorities. And when minorities don't learn this perspective, their opportunities to combat issues befalling their community are limited. What is so telling about this issue of not achieving a Latino studies major on campus is how arduous it can be to put any ethnic programs in place at a university. In the past, it's taken the unrelenting incitement of a specific community and harrowing events to befall it before a university is willing to instill programs that enhance awareness of the issues of that community. The African American Studies major was only founded nearly half a century after the University of Florida was integrated. And yet, the program remains underfunded and undersupported, a dispute that has endured for African American Studies programs all over the country. Um, I'm Melissa. I grew up for the most part in South Florida. My position at the university is really centered around diversity and student involvement. A lot of the activities and organizations I was involved in were from different ethnic groups. So I think that really helped me to get a sense of different cultures and also um, their history and the, th the different things they face within the university. Melissa actually graduated a few years ago, but while she was here, she spoke with us a little bit about what she felt finally led to the creation of the African-American Studies major at UF. So the African-American Studies major was recently adopted after the blackface incident um, two years ago. And I feel like that was only really implemented only to silence the um, black community at UF and just to really make us complacent like okay you know to pacify us they gave us this so we should be happy when really people were fighting for an african-american studies major for years for at least like 40 years and it was only recently given and it's still a program it's not even a department and they gave no funding to the program. So they now have a major where they have to teach more classes, but they don't have any funding to hire more faculty. And I think that is a real problem. And it shows that it's not really supported. They're just throwing them out to sink or swim. And if they don't have the resources that other programs and departments do, then how do they expect that program to flourish? So I think, um, I think the status is that it's growing and I hope that with our new president that these programs are taken more seriously and it's not just thrown out there just to say we have it and just to represent diversity. I think a lot of times UF is, they are focused on 
being diverse and offering diverse things, but at the same time, there's a different, it's not going to be effective if it's not implemented correctly. Melissa brings up an issue many ethnic programs at universities face, which is the use of token gestures to silence community rather than to actually nurture demographics that face hostility. Latoya Hunter, a UF teacher and political science graduate student, noted that providing support for these sorts of programs is a transfer of power, and that for most institutions, the transfer of power cannot come without some admission of negligence or the surrender of power. I will say that we know the long history of the Department of African American Studies here at the University of Florida. It's taken more, it took more than 40 years for us to get a major for them to be able to grant um, bachelor's degrees in that program. Um, and, you know, we can attribute that to it being in liberal arts or whatever, but now it's one of the fastest growing majors in the department, um, I'm sorry, in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Um, I think that what we, we've seen just, you know, I, I read the news and I, I know what happened in, in Tucson where um, Mexican American studies was, was taken out, you know, even though it had shown um, all of these wonderful, impactful returns in student retention and graduation. Um, but I think that these programs highlight difference. And a lot of people are afraid of something that is different because there is this idea that to empower you means that one day you are going to come and overpower me. And that breeds fear in a lot of people. And I think we see that sort of dynamic and that fear play out in a number of different policy areas, even outside of education, um, even in the criminal justice system, even in the healthcare system, you know, we have a field called healthcare disparities, you know, and they are afraid to touch issues of race because it, it brings up ugly things because we don't want to talk too candidly about our past. And um, it makes us look very critically at us as a society, whether we are recipients of benefits from white supremacy or from sexism or from classism, or if we are um, the victims of those systems as well. Okay, history is ugly. Ugly things may be discredited, but they don't abate. The University of Florida, like all universities, has a rich history of racism towards its minority students and faculty alike, which made it much harder for African-American students to succeed UF alum Joseph McLeod spoke with us about his experience at UF in 1969. My late grandfather uh, grew up in Alachua, and it, he really didn't want me to come because of the racism he experienced. Like there used to be a sign uh, at the depot in Gainesville that said, uh, says, nigga, if you can read, run. If you can't read, run anyway. But Logic kind of was really racist. And uh, and like, when I was moving in, my, my, I had my roommate come in, you know, being the friendly guy that I am, I turned around, hi, my name is Joe. And I held out my hand to shake his hand. He looked at me, turned around, never saw the guy again. So they already had um, like mixed dorm rooms by the time you came. Well, that I can't really say. Like I said, they had one black, like I lived in South Hall. 
there were four blacks in South Hall, one per floor, okay? I mean, at that time, there were maybe 120 black students total. So, and then I had another white guy that moved in with me. He lasted about three weeks. After that, I spent, I had a double, double room all to myself. And uh, that's where everybody parted. For Joseph McLeod and so many other black students on campus during UF's integration, the college experience was an isolating one. Stephen Mickle, UF's second black law student graduate and the first black lawyer in Alachua County, can definitely attest to that isolation and even watched it break a number of his black colleagues. Mainly we just ignored it. We were left alone, nobody spoke to you. You know, I can remember walking up to a black janitor to talk to somebody. And he was scared to talk to me that he may lose his job. And so it was a very lonesome existence. Um, I can remember my first year or two walking around the campus, and I probably said three words all day. And those three words were present when my name was called in class. That was it. I spent a lot of time on the bench there in the Plaza of the Americas reading. Uh, of course, when I go sit on the bench, everybody leave the bench. But me, I'm left there on the bench. Uh, I think one of the things that perhaps made it a little easier for me is that Gainesville was my home. So my, I stayed at home with my parents. And so I could go, I could leave this all-white environment and go back over to the black community to be home with mom and daddy, you know, mama cooking home-cooked meals. And I'm just sort of telling them about my experiences. And of course, they couldn't really comprehend it because they hadn't been through it. They both went to Bethune Cooking College. That's what they met and all. And so, you know, they, they really couldn't appreciate what I was going through and what I was trying to express to them what I was doing. But nevertheless, there was a listening ear. You know, some of the students who lived on campus and who lived in houses around town, well, only two of us graduated, me and John Cena Williams. The other five dropped out, quit. One had a nervous breakdown. Um, so that was the that was the, the student life, if, if you will, back then. There was no student life. Okay, so I am V. Smith, and I am a native of Kentucky. So grew up and lived all of my life until the last two years when I moved to Florida um, in Kentucky. So I'm the director of the Institute of Black Culture. So our black alumni do not come back. They do not give back. And it's because they have these horrible, and I won't say horrible because everyone isn't horrible, but they're not the best experiences. And so they don't feel like they have the same connection in the ties as some of, as the majority student. V. Smith is the director of black affairs for UF's MCDA. And she's right. African-American alum rarely come back to contribute to the university after graduating. Judge Mickle tried to explain why in his own words. When I first got out of the University of Florida, the only thing I wanted to do is get as far away from this institution as I can get because I had no real pleasant memories. If you stop and think about it, uh, students in that day, and not even today, in historically black colleges, for example, when they graduate, they have classmates. Oh, yeah, well, John was from this city, or he was in my fraternity, or whatever, you know. We hung out together. I had none of that. My, my college slate is just white clean because there was nobody but me. 
Like many other black alumni, Judge Mickle doesn't have a class of college mates to think fondly on or with whom he can reminisce. He wasn't a part of any social club or support group that provided him with the networking opportunities that traditional students benefited from, or, as he mentioned, that you might find at a black college. To say the least, he did not feel supported at the university. This next clip was from an interview with Evelyn Moore Mickle. She's Judge Mickle's wife, but more importantly, she was the first African-American graduate of the UF College of Nursing in 1967. She noted that after graduating, she wouldn't tell anyone that she graduated from UF. Here's why. First of all, a lot of black people might not have even, they might have known about the University of Florida, but that was a foreign and a far-fetched idea. And so, um, it was one of those things that the members of the University of Florida, my experience here, was very, very traumatic at times. And so, I, I wasn't ranting and raving. I mean, I didn't have the same kind of joy uh, and pride when I said I had graduated from the University of Florida as a student from FAMU or Bethune-Cookman. When I'm at the University of Florida, I did not feel, I didn't have a feeling of belonging. And so that's why, you know, you just don't dredge up stuff and talk about stuff that you don't feel good about. And I had been asked to leave the University of Florida College of Nursing. First of all, I had the experience of fainting in one of my classes. And when I fainted, I was sent to uh, the infirmary. The infirmary sent me down the hill to a neurologist to check it out to see if I had seizures. Well, they ended up diagnosing me, diagnosed uh, with a diagnosis saying that I had uh, the little seizures, pedimol seizures. And so they put me on dexedrine, and this was my third year, uh, my third trimester, uh, which would have been the beginning of my second year here. And I was taking med surge. And so they put me on dexedrine, which is an upper, in the morning, and phenobarbital which is a sedative for the brain at night. And so I was a mess. I mean, you know, I couldn't stay awake. And then in the daytime, I was just jittery. And so it was very trying for me, but I didn't have anybody to advocate for me. I didn't have anybody I really could counsel with or talk to uh, because they didn't have, you. I mean, I didn't have an advisor. Now the white students may have had advisors, but I didn't have an advisor. And so one day, one of the graduate nursing instructors had an opportunity to fill in for one of the undergrad instructors. And so she saw my state. I mean, she just was able to look at me and see that something wasn't right. And so she asked me to stay over, and I did. And you can see this is still very much, very painful for me because I didn't have seizures, but yet, you know, I was treated for seizures. They could have easily put me on Valium, a Librum, one of the um, anti-anxiety medications, or they could have sent me to counseling. 
They didn't need to do that to me. And so the man surgery instructor told, asked me what was going on, you know, so that I would be able to tell her as opposed to her telling me. Because I was the talk around the, uh, uh, we were the talk in the College of Nursing. I know that. I have no doubt about it. And so when I told her, she told me, she said, don't take any more of that medication. What in the hell are they trying to do to you? And so she said, I will take care of this. That's exactly what her words. She said, I will take care of this. Now, shortly after that, I was asked, I was called in by the dean, Dean Smith, and the assistant dean was there. And they invited me, or they gave me an opportunity to withdraw and invited me to go to FAMU. Well, you have to understand this. At the time, FAMU was not accredited. They had lost their nursing accreditation. They said, they couched it this way. They said, we feel that you would probably do better in an environment where they're more like you. Not one time did they offer me any tutoring. Not one time did they offer me all of the faculty that's there. Not one time did they say, Evelyn, uh, we're going to assign you to Mrs. Doe. And Instructor Doe is going to, you know, be there for you. You know, if you need anything or if you're feeling like, you know, you need additional help or what have you, you can go to her. Not one time, but they did invite me to go someplace else to finish my education. Now, I didn't invite myself to the University of Florida. I was extended an invitation. Now, the same people who extended me an invitation also extended me an invitation to leave. And so I, I, I called, you know, um, I talked with my, my mother about it when I went home on break. Um, and my mother said this. She said, Marie, did you fail? I said, no, ma'am. And my dad said, well, she keeps crying, and you know um, she, she got sick. And Mama said, she didn't fail. What did you go down there for? I said, I went to get a, a nursing education. She said, well, what's back here for you? I said, nothing, Mama. She said, well, you can't come home. You can't come home because there's nothing here for you. She said, now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to pray for you. Your daddy and I are going to plant all this acreage here in corn, and we're going to get some additional money. We're going to ask God to just bless you, and you keep going to church, and you keep praying, and you keep doing your best. And she said, that's all we can offer to you right now. So anyway, um... It was a traumatic experience, and it's still painful. Feeling sought after one moment, and unwanted the next as a Black student at UF, was the standard, and another reason many Black alumni were unwilling to express pride in their alma mater. To combat this isolation and animosity facing the Black population at UF, the Black Student Union, or BSU, was formed in 1968. Here's Joseph McLeod describing its development. Well, when I came up in 69, needless to say, race relations 
ships were not, uh, let's say, very inviting for black students. Uh, I think that that year, up until that point in time, when I came in, was the largest class of black students. And very quickly, we formed strong bonds like uh, the Black Student Union was already in existence, but it was very low key. So me and several other people, we got together and we redid the uh, constitution of the BSU. And we more or less modeled it after the Black Panthers. Instead of, you know, uh, we had a chairman, had Minister of Defense, Minister of Information, that type of thing. And we became proactive. This brings us to one of the most significant events in African-American Gator history, Black Thursday. In 1971, the BSU submitted a list of demands to then-university president Stephen O'Connell. This list expressed that students were, quote, excluded from meaningful social and cultural endeavors on this campus, and that they were in need of more supportive resources. One of their requests was for the creation of a black cultural center on campus. After President O'Connell refused to meet this and other demands, a string of protests commenced, which eventually led to a sit-in on the steps of the president's office on April 15, 1971. Joseph McLeod was one of those protesters, and he described the experience with us in detail. Let's go back to the storming of the president's office. How did that idea come about? What caused that? Well, well, the BSU, you know, we got together, has had meetings over a period of time, and came up with a set of demands. One for the uh, university to recruit more black students to open the Institute of Black Culture to uh, recruit more black faculty and there were maybe four or five other demands that we had. And several times we tried to present it to the administration. Then we decided that we would just go ahead and have a sitting. And tell me a little bit about that, the sitting. Were you a a part of the sitting? Oh, yeah. Okay. And what was going through your your head, your mind at that time? My mind was that I wanted the administration to meet our demands of we, we The day before the sit-in, BSU met, and um, we organized who was going to actually uh, be in the president's office. Uh, I wasn't in the office because at that time I was minister of defense. I was more or less a marshal on the outside to make sure that everybody was where they were supposed to be. And then when UPD came, um, you know, nobody resisted or anything, and they had brought this bus, you know, to take us down to jail. <laughs> in fact, there was one guy that was clueless. He was coming in from from uh, class. Uh, his name was Dimp, and uh, Dimp saw everybody getting on the bus, and so he got on the bus. And so um, he was looking around, and them said, hey, where are we going? Everybody hollered, to jail. <laughs> and them hollered, let me out this email. <laughs> oh, we just cracked up. And when we, and when they booked us, some people gave the real name. We had several Urena Shitsons, had some Aretha Franklin's, James Browns, and 
And so, in the end, they ended up dropping the charges. They put us on academic probation for for a quarter. This was before the semester system, and and one condition was that we couldn't play intercollegiate athletics, but we didn't have an athlete, so it was sign of the time. 67 students were arrested or suspended for their involvement in this protest. Many of those students requested amnesty for those arrests and suspensions, but they were all denied. VSU then held a rally on April 27th of that same year in protest. Over the course of several days following the rally, 100 black students and their supporters withdrew from the University of Florida. They just left. To me, when I have discussions about why this this institute is so important, it extends, it's because of Black Thursday. And so Black Thursday was when Black students on this campus back in, in the 70s decided that they'd had enough and they took a stand and they withdrew from this institution to say that if you do not support us, we will not support you. Um, and so and if it weren't for those students who withdrew from the institution, this building would not be here. And then to me, that also means diversity really would not be represented on this campus. So it all started with um, those students from the Black Student Union taking a stand and saying, no, we need to be here on this campus. It's ironic to try and convince someone that your presence is essential by leaving. But it worked. In the coming fall of 1971, the Institute of Black Culture, or the IBC, was established as requested. V. Smith is the director of IBC, and it sits no more than 10 paces away from La Casita. And because La Casita was modeled after IBC, it also is a hub for student activism, cultural programming, and social justice. You know, even when Ferguson happened, I think the verdict came out, it had to have been about 10 o'clock at night because I was already at home and I just saw social media light up with students that were just so frustrated. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, because we have this institute, we were immediately able to make the call um, and say we're opening up the IBC, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. Within 20 minutes, we had over 80 people filling up the house um, just because they needed a place to go where they can be around, you know, other other people that understood what this meant, you know. And so, and it wasn't just black students that came, it was black students. We had Asian students that were here. We had Latina students that were here. There were white students that were here. Like we were all in the house frustrated together and then we're able to strategize. And we were here till two o'clock in the morning, just trying to figure out how can we make ourselves feel better and what can we do to go and support um, what is happening across the country. If we did not have an IBC or if there was not a La Casita, we would not be able to do those type of things. And so then just imagine what it would have felt like to have felt like like you were alone, you know, when that happened and you had no place to turn, you had nowhere to go, you did not have an establishment that made you feel like you were protected or that you belonged. Um, so when I look at even just current trends, not even just the history, um, it really even just exaggerates why we are so valid and why we're so important and why um, not only is the IBC and like a seat to need it, but just our whole department of multicultural diversity affairs with services. I mean, we try to service any student that considers themselves underrepresented or not supported on this on this campus. But IBC and La Casita can't serve as a hideaway for Latino and Black students. There needs to be a push for inclusion within these spaces, and the staff is aware of this. This is Olivia Garcia. She's a former UF adjunct professor of political science and also a former director of La Casita. This, these spaces are for everyone, right? Um, yes, we, La Casita at least, and for the most part ABC, we cater to um, students from a particular racialized and, and ethnic communities, but that doesn't mean 
that I have that I ignore the white student that comes in and wants to learn more about culture because he or she is traveling abroad or he or she wants to learn more. That's why we're here. You know, um, I have to provide support for Hispanic Latino students and I also have to provide support for people wanting to learn about other cultures. That's just as valuable. That's how we create allies. Melissa Alenor, who we heard earlier, is not Hispanic, not at all. And she actually served as an ambassador at La Casita. She told us about what it meant to her to work with a community apart from her own. So while I was an ambassador at La Casita, I really felt supported, especially so even though it was, even though I'm not Hispanic, I didn't really know much about Hispanic, Latino culture at all, but I learned a lot and I really, and I think it was there that my social justice heart began to grow and finding, um, or you know, being in solidarity with a community other than my own really helped me to gain perspective. Um, and it really helped me to grow in my understanding of the world and not center so much on myself, but also focus on other parts of other communities. And a lot of those things did even relate to my community. So I think it really helped in fact, in not even being tolerant, it really helped me to care about other people and see them as human. And so I feel like that experience was really good. And it really, and since it happened when I was a um, freshman and sophomore, it really helped me to grow into adulthood and shaped my experience at UF. And you know, looking at these two buildings today on my commute to campus, I have to say, it makes me incredibly proud to be a Gator of color. You go to college for the opportunities it provides to better yourself and your community, but students of color have historically had to navigate through a system that provides little support to accommodate their disadvantages. So when UF students of color were denied the support they needed, they band together and trailblazed a path for minority students to come. They also built their own little home away from home along the way. Seeing IBC and La Casita is a testament to that. But, and there's always a but, I still have to ask, does this mean that students of color are now sufficiently supported? Can we safely assume that because these designated spaces exist on campus for Black and Latinx students, that the university as a whole is an inclusive environment for these demographics? Melissa spoke on her views of UF's racial climate for Black students today. So I think right now the campus climate is that, well, at least in the Black community, is that people are really, they're feeling a bit tense and they are nervous about some what's what's going to be the next thing that happens because um, two years ago when I was a sophomore, first it was the blackface incident, and then there was an incident where a black girl was walking down Fraternity Row and people were screaming very racist and sexist slurs at her, and so at that point people were just like wow, what else? And then people are protesting um, around the Trayvon Martin case and someone writes the N-word on one of the um, petition seats. Or, you know, someone painting the 34th Street wall centering around Mike Brown and then someone writing, you know, thug life equals dead and other racial slurs on there. So I think the Black community at UF, they're really aware that 
we have feeling that these people don't really like us. They really just tolerate our presence. So it's always like nerve wracking to be wondering what's next or who's next, what's going to be the next thing that happens. And even identifying and collaborating with other communities, I kind of get the sense that they feel marginalized and that their voice often goes unheard. Obviously, based on this account, we still have a long way to go in terms of facilitating inclusion for students of color on campus as a whole. By the way, the blackface incident Melissa mentioned occurred four years ago when two members of a UF fraternity wore blackface to a costume party themed rock stars and rappers. After images of this incident started circulating, a member of the UF NAACP released this statement. Today, someone told me that it's time for blacks to forget our past. It's time to move on and move forward. The image was harmless. Hey, who really knows what blackface is? Let us not forget that it's been less than 50 years since blacks were allowed to attend this university. Combating ignorance in a university setting is going to take a lot more than IBC and La Casita. Nurturing a curriculum that is ethnically conscious is essential in educating students to be culturally aware of the people around them, their classmates, their friends, their neighbors, and their coworkers in the future. This is why ethnic studies is so important. Latoya Hunter tells us more. Ethnic studies is the study of anything that makes us different. So we're talking about race, we're talking about nationality, we're talking about gender, sexuality, and it's not just about women and people of color and queer people. We have whiteness studies and we study um, masculinity as well. Um, and so I think that I, I enjoy ethnic studies. I think it's important and it helps us to learn about us and to learn about other people. So they've been rewarding to you, but how do you feel like they reward students? So how do you feel those classes benefit students? Um, actually, I was reading through my um, course evaluations this past weekend, and what, I've see, what I see the most from students is that they enjoy learning something that they didn't know, um, or they enjoy learning a different perspective of something that they thought they knew. And I think the beauty of ethnic studies is we live our lives in a bubble of I know what my experience is and I'm pretty sure most people have an experience like me and if they don't have an experience like me that means that something's wrong with them and so what ethnic studies does is it sort of it bursts that bubble and it teaches you more about your experience than you ever thought you knew and it teaches you about how our different experiences intersect to create a broader experience and it also helps us to understand how our society works and what we can do as activists, as academics, as professionals to sort of change society to make sure that we all have an equal opportunity of employment, equal opportunity at quote unquote the good life. I think that um, a lot of people become defensive when you talk about classism and income inequality and they're rich people become defensive, you know, because they feel like you are attacking them when you really are only just discussing the issue at hand. Um, people who are white or who consider themselves white become oftentimes become defensive when we're talking about issues of race and issues of inequality that are linked to race. And so I think that part of what we have to do is we have to actually have these conversations and we have to have these discourses and we have to have people from these groups. We have to have LGBT people engaging in LGBT scholarship 
so that they can go out and they can actually inform people about what it is to be an LGBT person and how you as a non-LGBT person can actually help to um, break down systems, these inherent systems of inequality. I know directly from um, Dr. Austin, the director of African American Studies, they are hiring like eight people who are gonna be like cross-listed with different departments across campus. This is amazing. Um, again, it's you know a growing major, a lot of students, um, and Latin American Studies, I know so many people in, who work with the Center of Latin American Studies. It is also um, a bursting major. So I think that the future for these programs here at the University of Florida um, is very bright because people are buying into the, to the need for these programs. You have students, you have faculty, you have graduate students who are all working within these programs and working together on a lot of important scholarship and um, university life associated um, programs to, to enrich the university as a whole. Um, but I do think that we have to keep in mind that we are at a very old institution in the South and that universities are one of the last bastions of, that, of a, very old, um, a very old mindset that wants to keep things as they are. So we have to understand that, yes, we are winning now, but we, there is a war that we're fighting, which is rep adequate, substantive representation on this campus as a whole. And if we do not have black students on this campus, we probably won't have a lot of African-American studies majors. If we don't have Hispanic students on this campus, we probably won't have a Latin American studies major. Um, and so we have to remember that these programs are wonderful, but we have to continue to work to keep them here because we could possibly lose them one day. So I think we've beaten our audience over the head with the position that creating a safe space for students doesn't just mean creating a physical location where marginalized groups can retreat outside of the classroom. But for this last segment, I wanna focus on why this is important for teachers to actively facilitate as well. Taking consideration of the needs of different students is just as important to maintain in the classroom setting as outside. A lack of consideration on the part of a teacher can put students in stressful and even dangerous situations. Okay, so this is Holland Hall. I'm at the home of Ray Ward on June 30th, 2016. <laughs> and I'm Ray Ward. <laughs> Um, okay, great. Ray is a passing transgender student. Passing meaning he passes as a man and you wouldn't mistake him for a woman if you met him. He uses he him pronouns and has a female birth name. Well, my birth name is Rachel actually. I'm, I'm really original and I pick names. Um, yeah. In this interview conducted by Holland Hall, Ray agreed to openly discuss his experience of being outed by a teacher in class this semester. You know, I said like, oh no, you know, my name's Ray Ward, da da da. And uh, he's like, I, he, I guess I, I wasn't obviously on his roster under Ray Ward. He says, oh, well, you know, I have a Rachel Ward, you know. And, and I'm pretty good at rolling with the punches, so, you know, I just kind of made a joke out of it and was like, no, definitely not. I, you know, I made an excuse like, oh, I was added late. You probably don't have me there yet. And he wasn't trying to be malicious. I, it didn't even enter his head. And he kind of, like, dragged it out too long, and he asked, like, maybe three times or, like, in a different way. Maybe in his head he knew like subconsciously what was happening, but as, you know, a per like as consciously he couldn't connect the dots. 
And, you know, it's like, at some point I just turned around and, you know, gave him this look like, the, like, dude, really? You know, of course I was making a joke out of it and, you know, everybody laughed and stuff like that and he dropped it. But, I mean, obviously in my, in, like, my heart was beating, like, super fast yeah. and I was in, like, defensive mood, like, and of course I had to, like, I was distracted the whole class, you know, I couldn't barely function. It's like afterward, you know, I just told him, like, dude. And I had to tell him, like, three times before he, he believed what I said. And I could just see his face, like, as he realized what he had done. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it got, sorry, I didn't say, like, but, like, that was bad enough. I went there and I had accepted it, and, you know, I knew he wasn't being malicious. It was the first time this had ever happened to me. So to come here and, like, have that happen was a little bit hard for me, you know, especially just trying to be comfortable at UF. Yeah. Um, but then I went in on Tuesday and I was like, okay, you know, it happened, I'm over it. And they were passing back papers. These are engineering TAs, you know, they're not, a lot of them aren't as educated on these kind of issues or like maybe they're not socially savvy, you know. And he walked up to me and he like really loudly said like, are you birth name? And it was like, I can't remember, but I basically could not say no. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I couldn't say no. Like, and this was in front of like some people at my desk that I was just starting to get to know. I don't know them. I mean, I don't know what their opinions on LGBT people are. And, you know, like, I think the first thing I said was like, dude, are you trying to get me killed? You know? And it all happened. And then a few weeks later, like, again, I went to therapy. I kind of like, and I didn't know what I wanted to do because you're in that space where, again, it's like, do you speak up? Do you email the TAs? Do you email the professor? I'm not the kind of person to get people in trouble. That's not what I want, you know? And again, maybe he wasn't being malicious, but it still had consequences for me. And the professor ended up emailing me, and it was, it was all resolved really really in a friendly manner. I mean, part of that is because I don't want conflict. And I mean, I think for me though, I, I don't think they understood the extent of what they had done, the damage they had done, you know? And I'm sure up until Pulse happened, I think when things like that happen, it's, you know, sister straight people's instinct to go, they're overreacting, you know? And I, I think I'd written up several emails to the guy, like, trying to explain to him, like, desperately, like, you don't understand what you just threw me into. Because you can't take that back. Once it's known, it's known. And that's the kind of thing people like to share because they don't think it has consequences for people. You know what I mean? Like, to them it's just cute gossip, but then you tell the wrong person. And even if you don't face physical violence, or I could deal with, like, it means a small field I'm going into. And once people know that, even if they say they're comfortable with it or whatever, it changes the way they see you. And even if you live in a perfect world where nothing ever happens to you, you live with that threat on you. You know? Like, that constant, like... That you're not just, like, taken for face value. You're like, oh, that's Ray Ward, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean... Even before it happened, like, in a new space, like, and that's part of why I think I, I deal with some social anxieties, like, for instance, walking in that classroom, nothing had ever happened to me, but I still was on edge, because I didn't know if I was going to deal with discrimination that day. And it's like, even if that never happened, it's stressful to deal every day of your life walking through, like, 
having to be prepared to defend yourself. So, and, and it was one of those cases where it's, he wasn't being malicious, but I still am not comfortable in that lab, and I still dread going to that lab. And I actually went to the crisis center like the day after because I was upset about it, you know. And and do they, do they have resources there for LGBT or especially trans people? I really can't recommend it enough. Like, I mean, I. Like, I don't like to be dramatic and say stuff like, oh, they saved my life or whatever, but it, it's kept me sane. I mean, I think, especially as a LGBT person, you need support sometimes, and it's... I mean, I, the, the person I see there, Taya, she's... I mean, I wasn't comfortable in therapy in general. You know, throw all the LGBT stuff on the side, I'm still uncomfortable. And I, now I'm, I look forward to going every week, you know, and it's... It, I was really lucky that they were there for me. Um, and I'm really grateful, and I, you know... I guess I couldn't recommend it more. Like, I sound like a spokesperson, like, da 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 da, but yeah. it's like, really, just go get help. You know, it's, it's there for you, you know, and it's hard that first time, but it's there, you know, it keeps you from being in your own head. Thank you, Ray, for agreeing to speak on the record about your experience with us for this episode. For many students like Ray, a lack of awareness about LGBT issues can be life threatening for students within that community. Thankfully, the TA in that encounter wasn't hostile about his identity, but someone in that classroom easily could have been. The New York Times reported in June that nearly a fifth of the 5,462 so-called single bias hate crimes reported to the FBI in 2014 were because of the target's sexual orientation, or in some cases, their perceived orientation. According to the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, in 2009, 17% of all reported violent hate crimes against LGBTQ people were directed against those who identified themselves as transgender, with most, 11% of all hate crimes, identifying as transgender women. Of the 22 anti-LGBTQ hate crime murders documented by the NCABP that year, 79% of those victims were people of color. The stress of knowing that you could be targeted for violence simply as a result of carelessness or ignorance is daunting for anyone. Ray's experience at the Gator Wellness Center was extremely helpful for him during that time, so if you're a UF student in need of support, I highly recommend you take advantage of their resources. To close this first episode of Safe Spaces, I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for sitting through it. I hope it was entertaining and informative and that you will please subscribe to us on iTunes. We have a lot more incredible stories to share with you about the safe spaces around us and the people who inhabit them. Just a few shoutouts to all the incredible people behind these interviews you've listened to. Natalia Ochoa, Richard Lainez, Eric Castillo, Helen Minnie, Genesis Lara, Nail Carranza, Jocelyn Padron Racines, Andre Everett, Marna Weston, Matthew Hoek, Jason Horton, Carmen Lopez Ramirez, and Holland Hall. And a special shout-out to our interviewees for sharing their stories. Anthony Castro, Diego Diego Terran, Victor Yengo, Sarah Awartani, Vanessa Carla Miranda, Melissa Alenor, Latoya Hunter, Joseph McLeod, Stephen Mickle, B. Smith, Evelyn Moore Mickle, Olivia Garcia, and Ray Ward. To listen to these interviews in full, feel free to browse our archive on our website at oral.history.ufl.edu. Thanks also to our digital humanities guru, Ms. Deborah Hendricks, and of course, our SPOP director and coordinator, Dr. Paul Ortiz and Dr. Ryan Marini. That's a wrap for this episode. I'm Leah Miranda, and whoever you're with this holiday season, be safe, be civil. Happy holidays, you guys. <laughs>